Joshua 9. Verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who are on this side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard about it, that they had gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals in their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country now, therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. How can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, Oh, from a very far country your servants had come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision for our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Verse 14 is key. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of their God. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come into your presence today looking for understanding in search of you. Yes, we need direction for areas of our life that are unclear. Yes, we need wisdom. Yes, we need strength. Yes, we need comfort. But all of these things boil down to the need for one thing, and that is the presence of the living God. We are confident you are here with us today. So please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have with me a toy car. It's, what do you mean it's not a car? Okay, so what, what would this be? Is this is a transformer, right? Is this a transformer? It's a Decepticon. So this is not a transformer, it's a Decepticon. All right. Yeah, what? Say what? Now the reason I brought him up here to do this is because I'm a little technically challenged. I don't think that I could have done what he did in about two seconds flat, turning the, uh, turning the car into the robot. Thank you, my man. That's my son. That's, that's, pre that's preacher's kid. All right, he turned the... Uh, my man. All right, so he turns the car. It, it looks like a car, but it's really an alien robot called a transformer, but it's not really a transformer because this one has a symbol on it that means it's an evil transformer, which is a Decepticon. And you're saying, did I come to church to learn about children's toys? Well, one of the first jobs that I had coming out of theater was presenting, presenting children's toys for Hasbro. I lasted for 24 hours and they fired me. But anyway, this is a car that turns into a robot, but it's really an evil robot. See, you have the transformers and the transformers... The Autobots. The Autobots have come into the world to stand alongside mankind and fight with them and protect them. But the Decepticons, the Decepticons have come to destroy mankind and take over the world. 
All right, but it's kind of hard to tell when you take a look at them. I mean, because it just looks, if you were to see it on the street, it would just look like a car, but that morphs into a robot. Sometimes in this life, it's easy to be had. It's easy to have people put one over on you. Has anybody here ever had someone put one over on you? Anyone here ever had someone kind of just out and out deceive you or lie to you? Living in Manhattan before I was walking with Jesus, one night coming home from Carmine's where I worked around the corner, it was only a block and a half walk, and a man approached me. He said, my man, he goes, I've got something for you. And he had a brand new bag with a wrapped video camcorder. Now, back in those days, camcorders were still in. This is before we have what we have today. This is before everybody was really videoing things on their phones. This guy had a camcorder. It was still in the packaging. And he looked around like this. He was like, all right, the police are coming after me. I just stole this. I got to get rid of it anyway. So will you buy it? And now I'm thinking, well, all right, I'm not going to do. Well, okay, maybe I will. I've got 100 bucks on me. So what I tell him is, I've only got 75. Oh, no, man. He goes, I was hoping for 150, 200 dollars. It's like, all I got on me is 75, and I'm feeling pretty slick. All right, because I know I have $100 in there, but I tell him I've only got $75. And he finally, he looks around and he says, all right, all right, I'm going to give it to you. So he gives me the bag and I've got my new camcorder that I take upstairs into my fourth floor apartment and I'm psyched. I've always wanted one of these things. And so I take it out of the bag. I take the plastic off. The receipt is authentic. And as I open it up, it's newspapers in the box. And I'm thinking, well, for something brand new, they usually don't put newspapers in it. And then I open it up. And what it is, it's a full bottle of Gatorade. (laughs) And it didn't even have Gatorade in it. It was full of water. All right, so they actually drank the Gatorade, emptied it out, filled the thing with water, packaged it, and tricked a brother. All right? How many, yeah, how many of you have ever had one, somebody put one over on you? Because we're in a world right now, and that's why it's like the title of this message, How to Live Like Transformers in a World Full of Decepticons. There's a lot of people out there looking to trick us, looking to deceive us. Now, within the walls of the church... Let's not even go there. There are what they call wolves in sheep's clothing. So not only are there people sometimes on the outside looking to trick and deceive you and hurt you, sometimes there are people even on the inside walls looking to do that. And why does this make sense? Because we are living in a fallen world. The prince of this world's name is Satan. And the Bible tells us that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's just the way he rolls. And sometimes he rolls right over us to do it. So what his goal is to undermine every good thing that God is doing. And how does he do it? Sometimes it's a full frontal assault. How many of you have felt like at times you've had a full frontal assault on your life? It was your finances, your health, your family, all seemingly at one time. And you're getting discouraged in all of these areas. But sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes he likes to come in the back door and just kind of ease his way in. So the the trick is, is that if we're called to be Christians, how are we supposed to be lights? How are we supposed to shine our lights in a world full of darkness? When we have people out there that are ready to derail, dismantle, discourage, destroy the work that God is doing in your life. The enemy's always looking to derail us. He's always looking to discourage us. And so today, as we see Joshua and his men deceived, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look and we're going to pose the question for the Christian, the question for the Christian, how can we live like transformers in a world full of Decepticons? See, the Bible tells us that our Jesus came into a world full of darkness and he came to shine a light, but that when he came in to shine the light in this world, the world, the darkness could not comprehend it. The darkness could not comprehend the light. The light coming into the darkness absolutely confused it. And so today as we look, we'll take a look at the first few verses of chapter 9 again. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on the side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowlands and in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. 
Stop right there. The children of Israel had one command. You guys are a wrecking machine. In the land, in the promised land that I'm going to send you, I want you to take no prisoners. I want you to trample over everything. I don't want you to make covenants with people. I don't want you to make pacts with these people. I just want you to go in and take the land. That is all. Now, if you're the neighboring armies and you see the power of God as evident in what's happening here, think about it for a second. Word has gotten around. These guys have had the water parted for them supernaturally. They had the walls of Jericho absolutely leveled with a shout. They've just defeated another major army, and now they're coming towards you. So what the neighboring armies do, those five groups that I had mentioned, what they do is they say the only way that we're possibly going to be able to combat this kind of power is if we band together in a full frontal attack. So they are amassing an army to go against the children of Israel. Now consider this, on your way to the promised land, because the children of Israel are on their way to the promised land, on your way to the promised land, on your way to Jesus in this relationship with him as he's growing you and as we're growing together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, will there be challenges? Will there be challenges? Nothing on the way to the promised land is easy. Nothing. And sometimes the attack is going to come, as we saw in the first two verses, sometimes it's going to be very apparent. Sometimes people are going to be up in your face, and sometimes it's going to be a little more subtle. See, sometimes when they're trying to tempt Pastor John, it's the person that puts the Publix fried chicken in front of me. Sometimes it's just having that fried chicken right in front of me, right? But sometimes it's not that person. Sometimes it's the one that just wants to get me to Publix. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's just the one that wants to get me into Publix because they know if they can walk me by the, uh, the deli aisle that I'm sunk. So sometimes the attack is apparent. Sometimes it's the chicken right in front of you because that chicken is delicious. Have you guys ever had that Publix fried chicken? That chicken is delicious. 22 days without it so far. 22, 23 days without it. All right? That Publix chicken is delicious, and now somebody comes alongside, and okay, we want to take them down. We're just going to take them over to Publix. Hey, let's walk by the deli. And I'm walking by the deli, and I'm like, oh, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done this. Sometimes the attack is apparent, but what we're going to see from this group called the Gibeonites, and we're going to learn quite a few lessons from them today, as we take a look at the Gibeonites, they're going to come in a different form. Because the enemy comes in all shapes and sizes. All different modes of attack. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, and Gibeon was one of those territories that the children of Israel were told to take over, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. Stop right there. When it says they worked craftily, that word craftily, it's the same word, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, when it's describing a serpent that was more cunning than any of the beasts in the field that God had created, it's the same root of the word. All right? They came to deceive. They came to go through the back door. They came to put on a show. Why? Because they were afraid. Their fear is justified, yes? They knew that the children of Israel were to take no prisoners. So in taking no prisoners, well, you have five armies that are gathering together. These guys decide to take a different route for survival. They worked craftily. It says they pretended to be something that they weren't. Remember, if Satan's work is to undermine what God is doing, sometimes he's going to do things so subtle, he's going to sneak in again through the back door just to try to trick us and try to deceive us. But what we see with the Gibeonites, and it's our first lesson from them, is that their course of action is dictated by their circumstance. Their course of action is dictated by their fear. Their course of action is dictated by their circumstance. If any of you here ever moved and done something because you were afraid and you weren't trusting God, well, here's how we're going to be transformers in a world full of Decepticons. The first point is this. You will live like transformers when truth dictates your course of action rather than circumstance. You will live like transformers when truth dictates the course of your action rather than the circumstance. 
See, if you've ever compromised because of the situation you were in and you found yourself saying, I would have never done that except this happened. If this wouldn't have happened, I would have never done that. I would have never stolen anything from somebody that I loved or I cared about. I would have never compromised and broken the law. I would have never fill in the blank on the thing that you would have never done. I would have never said this, but I was put in a circumstance and it just came out. If you want to be agents of transformation in this world, if we want to be agents of transformation, we can't have what they call a situational ethic. Do you know what a situational ethic is? That's when what you do is determined by the situation you're in and your idea of right and wrong is, contr- is controlled by what benefits you the most. And that cannot be the Christian. That will not be an agent of transformation. We need to be guided by truth. How many of you have ever been on a sailboat? Anybody ever been on a sailboat? All right. You go on a sailboat, you usually go onto the sailboat and you put the sail up, of course, and you have a compass and you have a map, okay? And this is going to show you where you're going to go. You've got the compass, you've got the map, and you've got the sail up. You've got everything you need to get to your destination. Nobody gets on a sailboat just saying, hey, you know what? I'm just going to let the wind take me wherever it wants to. That would be downright silly, would it not? It would be downright silly to get on that sailboat because if there's no wind, where are you going to go? Nowhere. All right, and if there is wind and you don't have a compass and you don't have a map, you could end up anywhere. So you could end up anywhere and you could end up nowhere if you don't have something to guide you. You don't have a destination in mind. You don't have a compass. You don't have a map. And that's how most of us, unfortunately, are living life when we're not living it by God's word. Think about it. If we don't have God's truth, our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, if we don't have that in front of us, then we're kind of bouncing around here and bouncing around there and bouncing around here. Or sometimes we just feel like we're going nowhere. So you'll live like transformers when truth dictates your course of action rather than your circumstances. When you don't have truth, it's a recipe for going nowhere or getting lost. Now I want you to think about this for a second. One of the things that we offer at the church, and we offer this free to any couple that's getting married, is premarital counseling. What do we do in premarital counseling? What's the importance of premarital counseling? The importance of premarital counseling is this, is that before a couple gets up and makes a covenant before God and before mankind, saying that they're going to spend the rest of their lives together for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, till death, till death to us part, when a couple does that, it's important to know how you're going to manage your finances, whether or not you're going to have children, where you're going to live, how you're going to deal with the in-laws. Now, what premarital counseling does is we take you through different sections and we take a look, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? All right, how are you going to respond to it as a man leading your household? How are you going to respond to it as a woman that loves this man? And so what we do in premarital counseling is we take a look at all these different areas. Why? So when you get put in the circumstance, the truth is going to dictate your action rather than the circumstance itself. Does that make sense? It has to. It has to. Because I was talking to a friend the other night and this friend was telling me, well, I've been dating this person for years now and and I probably shouldn't be dating them. And he gave me several reasons as to why he didn't feel he should be dating this person. I said, well, what is the one reason that you you should be? And where we landed in our discussion was simple. I asked him one question, and it's a question that I ask of all my young men in the church and older men that are single. Does this woman love Jesus more than she loves you? Because if you make that the standard, then everything is measured by that standard, and you don't settle, and you don't compromise. So you live like transformers when truth dictates your course of action rather than a circumstance. The Gibeonites are afraid. Can you blame them? If you had this army marching towards you and you saw God's supernatural power behind them, you know that your people are about to get decimated. So the first thing that they do is they start getting crafty. They start getting a little tricky because circumstances have made them desperate. And when people get desperate, people get tricky. Let's take a look at verse 
4 into verse 5, And they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country now, therefore make a covenant with us. We'll stop right there. Here's what we see them doing. We see them putting, up, we see them putting on a show. They're putting on old clothes. They're, they're taking old wineskins. They're taking this bread, and they're taking moldy bread and beat-up sandals so that when they get there, it looks like they've come from a far journey. And they're putting on this show from the outside. Now, when I was in the theater, one of the things that I studied was the difference between the different kinds of actors. Here's what you have. You have character actors. A character actor is like a Laurence Olivier. Lawrence Olivier, a lot of you familiar at least heard the name Lawrence Olivier. Here's what Olivier would do in order to get into character. He would put on a prosthetic nose, a fake nose that he believed would match his character, and based on that nose or based on something physically he would do to the outside of himself, he would mold and morph into the character. So he was doing something from the outside that he hoped would affect his performance. Now the method actors... These are the crazy guys. These are like the De Niro's, the Pacino's. They go from the inside out. They try to make the character a part of them. And as they're getting into character, the character, they start from the inside and they work towards the outside. And it becomes an inner character transformation. Now for the Christian, what God is doing in our lives, he's trying to mold us and make us into the character of his son Jesus. But we know this, don't we? We know that change for the Christian happens from the outside in. No. For the Christian, real change, real transformation happens from the inside out. And this brings us to our second point. Unlike the Gibeonites who are molding from the outside, what we'll do is we'll live like transformers when we realize that true change happens from the inside out. We're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're not trying to wear the same clothes that everybody else is wearing. We're not trying to put on a show. What we're doing instead is that we're getting with God and we're letting him change our hearts and it's not as a it's not as important to us what the world is thinking when they're looking at us as it is as the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us it's a change that happens from the inside out if you want to transform if you want to be an agent of change in this world it's not the way that you dress that's going to change the world it's not the show that you put on that's going to change the world it's the change that happens in the heart of the christian when the holy spirit takes over a life and you're showing things that that the world has never seen from you there's real transformation inside this room there are people here today that are different than the moment that they walked into this church because of what God is doing in your lives, the way that the Holy Spirit has just come and made His home within your heart, and now you're responding to things differently, so much so that people are looking at you, scratching their head, and they're saying, what happened? What happened was this, is that you were being made more into the character of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. We're spending time with Him, and as we're spending time with Him, we're becoming, we're becoming more like Him. Now, the Bible gives a very interesting example of this. I want you to keep your place in Joshua, but I want you to turn real quick over to the book of Acts. And what we're going to read right now in Acts chapter 5, we're going to read about a couple that saw the movement that saw what was happening in the church, and as they saw what was happening in the church, they wanted to be part of it, but they wanted to put on that they were becoming part of it. They really didn't want to be part of it. I want to show you what this looks like. And this is New Testament. Acts 5, it says, But a certain man named Ananias... Now, here's what's happening in the church. There's major transformation. Converts are being made. Thousands of people are coming to Jesus. The ch everybody in the church is selling the things that they have, sharing them with each other, and it's becoming this real amazing community. People are looking and they're saying, what they got, I want. Ananias and Sapphira took a look and they said, you know what, what they got, I want. Acts 5, verse 1 says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession... And he kept back, listen, he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it, brought a certain part, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So she carried the lie on. Verse 9 says, Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband so great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Stop right there. This is kind of tough to hear, is it not? They wanted to appear that they were part of what was going on in the church. But rather than appearing like they were part of what was going on in the church, they were doing something in secret. And that thing that they were doing in secret... It wasn't about the fact that they didn't give everything they had to God. It wasn't a mandate against the church to say, well, listen, if you don't sell all of your possessions and come into Calvary Chapel, Delray Beach, it's not that. The fact of the matter is there was a movement going on in the church and they tried to pretend to be something that they weren't. Why? Because they wanted, they wanted the appearance of it, but they didn't want the reality of it. Do you find that? That some people are more about the appearance than they are actually about the substance. More about the appearance than they are the substance. See, if we want to be agents of transformation in this world, understand that so many people are out there are trying to impress other people. What we're trying to do is get closer to God and watch what He does in your life. You will indeed be an agent of transformation when the change happens from the inside out. The Bible also tells us in Luke 19 about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. And one day when he was going to see Jesus, he climbed up a tree. And when he climbed up that tree, because the crowd wouldn't let him see Jesus, Jesus came, treated him like he was his best friend. The crowd was incensed. They were irate. Because Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come on down, my man. Come on. And as soon as Zacchaeus comes down, Jesus says, listen, I have to eat at your home today. What are you doing up there? Treating him like he's his friend. And because of that, because of the way Jesus treated him, what happened was Zacchaeus said, listen, I'm going to sell, I'm going to make everything right that I had made wrong before, and, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to sell my goods, and I'm going to give to the poor. And what Jesus said was salvation had come to this man's house because there was a change from the outside in. No. There was a change in Zacchaeus from the inside out. And because of that, Zacchaeus' story is still being told today. So when people look at our lives, are they seeing a life that is being changed, that is being transformed from the inside to the outside? When people are looking at your life, they're seeing a glow about you. They're seeing something different. Somebody that used to get angry and your cheese used to slip off your cracker regularly. People are looking at your life right now and they're saying, He's not responding like he used to. She's not responding like she used to. Whenever she would get bad news before, she would fall apart at the seams like that. And now she's holding it together and something different is happening. What's happening? It's the Holy Spirit transforming someone from the inside out. And the world is saying, well, nothing on this earth could have changed, so that must be something from heaven. You want to be transformers, we change from the inside out. Let's go back to the book of Joshua Starting at verse 6. So the people from Gilgal say, We have come from a far off country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. So again, they're trying to trick Joshua's army by saying that they're not who they are because Joshua's army has been told to take over these people and instead, they're saying, Make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, They questioned them, Perhaps you are dwelling among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country. Now listen to the lie that they spin here. 
From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, and we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants now. Therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed from you, but now it's dry and moldy, and these wineskins which we filled were new, and see they are torn, and these are garments, our sandals have become old just because of the very long journey. Stop right there. Can you even take it anymore? Can you even take the show that they're putting on anymore and the lie that they're spinning? How many of you know some good liars? (laughs) How many of you have been a good liar? Okay. Well, we say with the pathology of a liar, this is how a liar is born. It starts with little white lies and that little white lie, okay, I spent this when I really spent this. It was not a big deal. But you received positive validation from that a positive outcome from it, so you told a bigger lie. And when you told a bigger lie, what happened was, well, it had a good outcome, and now you've justified lying by saying, well, if the outcome, if the end justifies the means, then it's okay to lie. All right, and then you graduated. Now you started believing the stuff you were slinging. That's the anatomy of a liar. Let me tell you about a 15-year-old who got his first job for Burger King. And the first job for Burger King, well, one night before we left, I had not been working this night. What they would do to prepare the breakfast the night before was they would crack like 500 eggs and they'd put them in this big metal vat. Okay? And so they would crack like 500 eggs and they put them in this vat. Well, the next morning, three people come into work myself, another coworker, and the manager. Now, the manager goes right into the office. The other coworker goes into the bathroom, and the first thing that I do is I take a look and I see this vat, and it's been left out. So I thought it was like rotten shake mix. So I take the vat, and I dump the 500 <laughs> cracked eggs down the sink. All right. Now, the ma- I wash the thing out. <laughs> I wash the thing out. The manager comes out, and he's getting ready. Okay, guys, we've got to make the eggs for the morning. Where's the vat? And I'm thinking, okay, all right. Um... He's like, we had, we, we, he goes, before I left here a few hours ago, we cracked like 500 eggs, and they were in this vat. Bob, do you know where they are? Bob's like, I have no idea where they are. John, do you know where they are? No, sir. Nope. <laughs> I have no idea where they are. I don't know where, I don't know where the eggs are, sir. Okay, but he goes, but there were only two of you here, and Bob was in the bathroom. John, do you know what happened to the, no, sir. I, I, okay, he could have waterboarded me. Okay, (laughs) for the eggs, and I wouldn't have said where they were. I never fessed up to that. If this man were still alive, that would be something where I'd have to go make amends to that, but I never fessed up to that. I kept my job there for about another month or so. How many of you know some good liars? You know some good liars. We've been some good liars at certain times in our life. If lying was a profession, we would be like what... What, uh, to lying, we would be what Bill Gates is to Microsoft. Like some people are really good at the tales that they spin. And they say, good liars lie. Great liars will actually say if you had your purse stolen, they could lie about it. But a really great liar will help you look for it. Right? Have you ever heard that? A good liar will help you look for it. You want to be an agent of change in this world? You'll be a transformer. This is point three. You will live like transformers when you are standing on foundation instead of spinning fabrication. You will live like transformers when you're standing on foundation instead of spinning fabrication. We want to be agents of the truth in a world full of lies. And the only way that that's going to happen is the more we get into the Word of God. I want to read something to you. Just the first few verses from Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 reads like this. It says, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its due season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Stop right there. All right, an easy way to become a liar is, is the way that it says here. It says, blessed is the man who, listen, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands not in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Do you see how this thing happens? All right, first you start walking with them. All right, then you're exposed. All right, you're exposed to the unrighteousness. You're walking with them. Then you start standing with them, and now you're infected. And now you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. You're becoming one of them. Now you're passing on the infection. Now you've become infectious. Rather than that, what the Bible is telling us, it says, blessed is the man instead, listen, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. What happens when you're meditating on God's truth? When you're meditating on God's truth, you're putting his person in perspective. You're putting his plan in perspective and you're submitting to it and you're being transformed from the inside out. And what's happening is this, is that when you get put in that situation, you get put in that circumstance, you're going to be an agent of transformation. You're going to be an agent of change because instead of spinning fabrication, you're being overwhelmed by the truth. There's a brother in here that I talk to regularly that tells me the importance of just listening to the Word of God, saturating himself with the Word of God, just listening to it. There are some folks here that would say, Pastor, I'm just not a reader. All right? There are all sorts of CD collections and tapes. Start listening to it, listening to it. The more you put in the filter, the more of the good stuff that you're putting in the filter when you get put in that circumstance instead of reverting and defaulting to the fabrications and spinning elaborate lies, what you'll do is you'll be responding in truth because you're being filled up by it. That's what you're putting in the filter. Does this make sense? The more, the more good stuff that you're putting in the filter, that's going to help determine what comes out when you get pressed and when the circumstance comes. There's one more verse that I want to take you to in Philippians. It's chapter 4. So if you've put enough bad things in the engine and you're hearing the pings, then what you want to do is you want to replace it and you want to put the good stuff in. So what Paul says in Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 8, from a prison cell, how would you keep yourself from developing that negative mindset and, and reverting back to who you are in the prison cell? Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Is that what, you, what you've been meditating on? Because if that's not what you've been meditating on and you're reverting back to the lies or if you're reverting back to the lies that the enemy's spinning in your head and the fabrications he's putting there, then the best way to combat that is by getting in the word of truth, focusing on the things that are true, focusing on the things that are noble, focusing on the things that are lovely, focusing on the things that are of good report and filling that, saturating yourself with it, saturate yourself with it, meditate on the law of the Lord, on his person. That you may be, don't you want to be that tree planted by rivers of living water that brings forth fruit in, it, in its due season? Don't you, isn't that who you want to be? You bring forth a fruit, you become exactly what you were made to be. Rather than doing what the Gibeonites are doing here, weaving this intricate web of lies, Oh, the wineskins, they're old. My sandals are old. Oh, it's been such a far, far journey for us. And they're putting on a show, man. How many of you have ever put on a show? And how many of you are tired of the show? How many of you are tired of the show? Verse 14, and again, this is a crucial, crucial verse here. The transformer's getting in the way. <laughs> Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them 
to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made that covenant with them that they had heard that they were the neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sephira, Beeroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Stop right there. You will live like transformers when God's counsel is not an option, but it's mandatory. And let me say this as sincerely as I can, and in love as much as possible. There are a lot of us that if I were to say right now, are you seeking God's counsel in the most important decisions of your life? Some of you would go like this. Some of you would go like this. But it's one thing to say it. And quite honestly, it's another thing to do it. His counsel is the most important counsel that we can seek. If you're having trouble understanding what He wants you to do, if you're in a season of uncertainty, then you can come to a pastor, go to an elder, go to a leader in the church or somebody whose knowledge of the Word that you respect, but understand, are you doing what you're doing? Because this was the counsel you got from Him in a major decision in your life. Was this the counsel that you said, you know what, I, I'm not going to make this decision without God? How many of you have ever said that? How many of you have said, I'm not taking another move. I'm not taking another step unless I know that God is in it. And if He doesn't tell me what to do, then I ain't moving. If that's your resolve, trust me when I say that you will experience the person of God. You will experience the plan of God. And you will indeed experience the power of God when you wait on Him. When his counsel is not optional, but mandatory. Because quite honestly, as we said the other week, though we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done, most often we're praying my kingdom come, my will be done, and we're counseling him rather than saying, listen, I want to hear from you. You tell me if it's time to move from this spot. You tell me if it's time to take this job. You tell me if it's time to fill in the blank. Verse 19. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. We're just going to make a quick point here and a quick observation. The leaders in Joshua, they had made a covenant before God. Now they had made that covenant with liars and you would think that for a moment you could say, okay, our contract is negated because you're not who you said you were. But instead of that, what we see them do and pay attention is we see them respond to unrighteousness with what? With righteousness. Because the covenant that they made was before God. Even if the other people were liars, even if you don't feel like you're getting treated fairly, how many of you have, how many of you have come into these doors ready to say, Pastor, this happened and I don't feel like I'm getting treated fairly because of it. This is not fair. It's funny, there are three words that I don't remember Jesus ever saying from the cross when his hands and feet were nailed there. I don't remember him ever saying, it's not fair. I also don't remember ever teaching a lesson from this pulpit that said life is fair. God is fair, but we've never taught that. So if your battle cry is, it's not fair, then we need to quite honestly get over it. If you want to be agents of transformation, you might not always be treated fairly. You might not always be treated right in this world. But the life that we're called to is a life that is different. And then you say, but pastor, I can't do that. I can't turn the other cheek. You don't know me. If you call yourself Christian, then let me explain Not turning the other cheek and striking back is a luxury. And as a Christian, we're not afforded it. 
And you would say, but pastor, that's too hard. I can't do it. I know that that's what the Bible says, but I'm not Jesus. That's exactly right. So you get put in these situations where you're not Jesus because you need Jesus and you need the power of his Holy Spirit, which can give you the power to respond the way that he wants you to. And when you do that, that's when you're a transformer in this world. When you do that, when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to turn the other cheek when you never would have, when somebody takes your cloak and you give them your tunic as well, and it's something you would have never done before, but you know that it's the, what the Word of God says. And you say, God, I'm in this situation right now where I'm being called to respond righteous. I know it, but I'm having a hard time doing it. I'm really going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. That ain't going to work. The way to respond to unrighteousness is righteousness, and that will only happen, listen church, when you submit. When you stop fighting for yourself. And in that moment, when you stop trying to fight for yourself, what will happen is the power of God and His Holy Spirit will flood into your life and watch what He does. Watch the power He gives. And that's when the world will look at you, but they won't see you anymore. That's when they're actually going to start seeing Jesus. And that's the one that they need. Last point that we're going to make about this passage Verse 22, so the people are upset, okay? The people are really upset with Joshua and the leaders because they know that they've disobeyed God and the leaders have failed to take the counsel and now there's division in the camp and people are unhappy, but Joshua and the leaders have said, no, the covenant we've made before God we're going to keep. Verse 22 said, then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to you. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord, and in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now we'll stop right there. That's the end of the passage. I want to point out one positive thing. <laughs> one positive thing. <laughs> I want to point out this. Is that the Gibeonites seemed to exhibit faith, didn't they? Even if they lied to do it, they lied because they feared God. They feared God, but the children of Israel and the leaders didn't fear God enough to ask and check and vet their character. But the Gibeonites said, listen, we've seen the power of your God. We believe in the power of your God, and we were looking to save our own skin. Now, the other side of that coin is this. And what we learned from the children of Israel and the Gibeonites is simple. And this is the last point. The Gibeonites are just looking to save their own skin. Yes? They're just looking to save their own skin. Last point says you will live like transformers when you resolve not to simply survive as slaves in this world, but to reign as sons and daughters of the living God. You will live like transformers when you resolve not to simply survive as slaves in this world, but to reign as sons and daughters of the living God. The Bible said to as many that came to Jesus and believed in Him, to them He gave the power to be called the what? The sons of God. That's who you were called to be. Anything less, you might as well be the woodcutter. You might as well be the water bearer. You might as well be the slave in the house of God. But you're called instead to be children of God, to have the power of God. So many of you are just fighting for survival day in, day out, just to survive, just to get through. Have you ever felt like that, that you were just kind of rolling with the punches, just trying to block so that you wouldn't get hit? Every day you're just trying to fill the holes in the dam when instead what you're called to be is a son of God and a daughter of God. But understand this, not to walk around saying, I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God. <laughs> No, you're called to be a son of God. That's, that should humble us to the point where we say, wow, 
I'm, I've been made the son of God by the fact that he sent his son to die on a cross for me. And this is the crown that he wore. This is the crown that he wore. He wore a crown of thorns. He had his hands and feet nailed to a cross because he loved us. And out of that, you, my friends, have been made children of the living God. Live as nothing less than that. This is not a prosperity gospel. Prosperity was one on the cross for us. It's not about a mansion on A1A. It's not about a Bentley. Though there is a nice one that's parked out in front of the church on Wednesday nights. It's not about that. It's about being a child of the living God. That's what you were made to be. I want to close you with an illustration from an actor friend of ours named Jackie Chan. A while back, Jackie Chan starred in a movie called The Tuxedo. In the movie, he played a taxi cab driver. His job was to serve his customers. He wound up becoming the driver for Clark Devlin, a top secret agent. During one scene in the movie, the car comes under attack and Clark Devlin becomes critically wounded in the attack. Mr. Devlin tells Jackie Chan to put on a tuxedo located in the car that will give him extraordinary power. The injured passenger told Chan, when you put my coat on, then you will share in my glory. Jackie Chan put on Clark Devlin's tuxedo and he found powers to walk on walls, to do all kinds of flips, and to overcome the enemies who would seek to bring destruction, all because he wore the clothing of another. Church, you have been called to wear the clothing of Jesus Christ, who clothes you with his righteousness. He takes our filthy rags, the best of the things that we ever tried to do without him, because no sin could be tolerated with him, and what he does is he gives us a cloak of righteousness so that we can walk up the wall don't try that walking up the walls and doing the backflips and doing the spins no you might not be able to do that but here's what you will be able to do you'll be able to love the unlovable that's hard you'll be able to forgive the unforgivable you'll touch the untouchable You'll have peace. The kind that surpasses understanding. You'll have comfort despite our mourning. We'll have all these good things that come from God. And all on a road together going towards Him every single day. How do you be an agent of change in a very dark world? Jesus gave us the greatest example. It's the reason that we're reading together as a church through the book of Mark. That's why we're studying through the book of John. We're looking at his life. Man, when you look at the life of Jesus and you see the way he responds, it's like every response is perfect. Every response is dead on when so often mine are so off only the power of his Holy Spirit that was the gift that he gave to us. There's a saying that says this, if you dance with the devil, you don't change the devil, the devil changes you. You want to be agents of transformation, agents of light in a dark world? And continue to give yourselves over to the power of Jesus Christ.